Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Eric Kuhn. He's retired general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservancy District. And he's in town uh, in part to speak about his new book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. His talk is uh, today, 3.30 this afternoon, in Engineering 201 on the USU campus. That's free and open to the uh, public. Engineering 201, 3.30 p.m. Uh, Eric Kuhn's book, co-written with John Fleck, examines one of the long-held myths of the Colorado River. The myth is that the unusually wet runoff conditions of the early 20th century were not well understood by those who negotiated the Colorado River Compact. Thus, the compact negotiators assumed there was more water to divide than there actually was. In the book, the authors provide a historical perspective on the state of the river science in the early 20th century and show that compact negotiators chose to primarily use information that was convenient to their policy goals. The story illustrates the persistent tension and challenge in applying the best science to public policy and the challenge in communicating scientific uncertainty in policy development. Uh, Eric uh, Kuhn is uh, a respected water manager, uh, just recently retired in the Colorado River Basin and uh, has worked through many of the problems that we're facing uh, today and now with some interesting historical background. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you uh, coming in. I want to start, at, dive into the history here very shortly. I want to start with uh, current problems, and we'll loop back around to those, of course. Um, you say in your book... The Colorado River system is unsustainable in its current form. Yes, uh, and uh, to simply put, uh, through the compacts uh, and the uh, laws uh, that have been passed by Congress to develop the river uh, and an international treaty with Mexico, we've allocated on paper about 17.5 million acre-feet of water. Uh, and many of the people in the states like Utah and Colorado and Arizona, California, both the, those in the upper river and the lower river, are expecting to use that water. Uh, unfortunately, nature is giving us a river today of about 12 to 13 million acre feet. Uh, so we have 17 and a half million acre feet of apportioned rights on the river, but a supply of only 12 or 13. And that's unsustainable. Uh, we're going to have to change how we look at uh, how we deal with water uh, in the Colorado River Basin so that we use what we've got, not what we hoped we had 100 years ago. Uh, so, I mean, that's a problem, right? But <laughs> it's a serious problem because <laughs> it, it pits one state against another it, within states. It, it uh, forces uh, agricultural communities who uh, covet their water for irrigation uh, to be very protective of their supplies because they look at the cities like Denver and Phoenix and Los Angeles uh, who need to serve water to people. Uh, and uh, they, it, it sets up tensions between uh, not just individual states, but users within the states. And so you've been involved in, um, uh, in fact, you were telling me before we went on the air, the Water Conservancy District that you were headed up was uh, formed to protect Western Slope interests, right? That's correct. We're a state of Colorado agency. And Colorado is split down the middle, if you want to say, by the Continental Divide, as, as in some ways as is Utah, although the divide is for the Great Basin and the Colorado River Basin. 
but Colorado is split down the middle. Uh, most of its people, in fact, 85% of its people live east of the Continental Divide. They live in the Denver, uh, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, Greeley area. Uh, most of the water, about 80% of the water, is in the Colorado River Basin. Uh, so as early as the 1920s, uh, farmers and cities uh, in Colorado's East Slope, uh, Front Range, looked to the West Slope for water supplies. Uh, and that created, a, obviously, a fight with those who were in the basin in, you know, on the West Slope who believed that their future was going to be compromised because these large uh, farming districts and cities were going to take their water. Um, and so that illustrates the you know, the conflict. Uh, this is to say nothing of upper basin, lower basin, right? That's I mean, correct. Uh, within the Colorado, we have um, two natural basins. Uh, the, those natural basins ultimately became part of the Colorado River Compact. Uh, but you have what we call the upper states, and those are largely New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. And 90% of the yield of the river or more starts in these upper states because that's where it rains and snows. You know, the Colorado River Basin is roughly 250,000 square miles. That's one-twelfth of the continental 48 states. But most of that is actually desert, high desert and low desert. Uh, And it's only those areas above 9,000 feet, which are primarily the mountains uh, in Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah that provide almost all of the water for this river. Now, of course, we have these conflicts in Utah. Um, and I, I'm very uh, familiar with the Central Utah Project uh, because I grew up in Vernal, Uinta Basin. And uh, I, I still remember there were some hurt feelings, uh, some, you know, people are bent out of shape still. I, I you know, I was young enough to that I, I wasn't involved. Um, if, if people say they took our water. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, the Vernal is on uh, the Duchesne River, which is uh, Utah's largest tributary to the Colorado. And that's also where Utah has uh, – it's where most of the water that Utah can physically use uh, is located. Uh, and, of course, uh, early in the 1900s, there was first the Strawberry Valley Project. And then in the, in the 50s, the folks of Utah decided they needed more water for the Wasatch Front. And the answer was the Central Utah Project, which collects water from the Duchesne River, the, the southern slopes of the Uinta Mountains, and moves it into the Front Range uh, via Strawberry Reservoir and and uh, it, it, a, a tunnel that takes it into the Spanish Fork. Yeah. Now, Strawberry Reservoir is very beautiful, but, uh, you know, that's put that aside. There, you know, there's recreation and there's some other things. You that's know, right. The, it's the it's really built for a water yeah, supply. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, here in Cache Valley, recently, the Cache Valley, Cache County voted a water district. Uh, in, in, and the selling point was uh, we need a district to protect ourselves. Yes, and, and I, what I understand from that is that, uh, you know, the Bear River, uh, which is, uh, uh, begins up here in the headwaters of, the, of uh, Wyoming and, and Utah and the Uintas, and flows north into Idaho and then back into the Great Salt Lake, uh, the competition for that water is going to be get, is already uh, tense, and it's going to get more so um, as the Front Range continues, or not the Front Range, the Wasatch Front continues to grow. I, yeah. I have this Colorado right. perspective, right. Yes. so, so <laughs> your, Utah's Front Range is really the Wasatch Front. Right, right. Uh, so before we go back and uh, look at some of this fascinating history, um, one more thing sort of out of sequence from your book. 
uh, it's just so fascinating. But it, it goes to today. That's your chapter on the Central Arizona Project. And I just want to quote a little bit here. Um, when the Central Arizona Project was completed, it had become clear there would not be enough water to fill it. Uh, from one happy lie that there was plenty of water to go around, boosters turned to another. Um, somehow, somewhere, we're going to get water, right? This, That's right. <laughs> we go to very fanciful and, and uh, you know, far-fetched, uh, I guess, plans, but, but, but the, the lure of the project is so powerful. That, that's correct, and, and this was in the 1960s, and, and by the 1960s, uh, the hydrology, uh, which when I talk about hydrology, how much, what's the native flow of the river, absent human uses? That's, we call that the natural flow. They used to call it the virgin flow. Um, when they were negotiating the compact, the, the compact negotiators believed, uh, incorrectly, but they believed they had around 20 million. So they, they uh, ultimately, we apportioned 17 and a half million of that to Mexico and the upper basin and the lower basin via compacts and treaties. And by the 19, early 1960s with the 1930s drought and the 40s were about average and the 50s drought, it became clear that there wasn't uh, anywhere near 20 million uh, on the system as a whole. Uh, there was more like 15 or so and 16. But expectations had already built. Um, Arizona has been looking at a major project to divert water from the main stem of the Colorado River near Parker into central Arizona. They began that quest in the early 1900s. And that had become a cultural, you know, part of Arizona's culture was taking water from the main stem and bringing it into the Phoenix and Tucson areas. Now, at the time in the 1960s, they were using groundwater, and that ground, they were mining that groundwater for agricultural purposes primarily. And they needed a supplemental supply. They knew they couldn't rely on continuing to mine groundwater. So the Central Arizona Project, their primary quest, water quest of Arizona, uh, first they had to go to court and beat California in a very important case called Arizona v. California in the 50s. They won that case, so that now allowed them to go to Congress and say, authorize the Central Arizona Project. Bureau of Reclamation will build it. It ended up costing billions of dollars. But by then, we already knew that there wasn't enough water for that project. Um, in the West, we have what's called um, prior appropriation, which means first in time is first in line. And who were, who were here first? It was the big irrigation districts. It was those folks in the Imperial Valley, in the Palo Verde, uh, on the West Slope, uh, in Utah's uh, Duchesne River Basin. They were here first. Uh, so we knew that the priority of the Central Arizona Project was going to be relatively low. And based on that priority, it wouldn't have a water supply uh, that was necessary to fill the big canal that was built. So what we said, and then I say the collective we, was we'll ignore that fact. We'll just assume that we'll import water from somewhere else. So it's called augmentation, importation. Uh, so to make up for that deficit uh, in the system, we just assumed and Congress just assumed that we'll authorize the project anyway, but we'll spend money and we'll import water from the Columbia River. Now, of course, the Columbia River folks are neighbors in Idaho or Utah's neighbors in Idaho. And um, 
Washington and Oregon and Montana and, and the Columbia, of course, even drains into Canada. They had a different view of that. They were just like uh, your neighbors in Vernal <laughs> when you grew up. They weren't going to let the, the Southwest take their water out of the Columbia River system and, and export it uh, into Arizona to make up for a fundamental flaw in the law of the river. Mm. Uh, it, uh, would that even have been? I guess it's possible. Engineers are very smart, right? You could you could do it. Oh yes, if it were allowed. If uh, you had enough money, you can do it. Y- yes. Yeah, and the old saying, "Water flows toward money," right? That's correct. Um, which which usually means population. Um, another idea that was floated. I, I don't know if it's still floated. Desalinization. Well, desalinization is happening. Um, it's happening in, along the coast of Southern California. Um, the San Diego um, gets a small portion of its water supply, the San Diego County, uh, from uh, desalinating um, ocean water. The problem with desalinization is that it's expensive. It takes energy uh, to desalinate water. And you also come up with a brine stream that's very, very concentrated salts, and, and you've got to do something with that. So desalinization is happening, but it's not going to happen on a large scale. It's going to happen on a small scale. Um, it's a little bit like um, um, if you have a collection, you know, if you have a portfolio of water supplies, you can, you can afford to have some real expensive water if you have some cheaper water uh, to mix so that your customers really pay a mix. Uh, so it's, it's expensive, it's happening, but it's not going to be a major, major source mm-hmm. of water. So before we go to a break and then get into some of this fascinating history, I just want to read this sentence. Uh, you, you say the fundamental policy question facing Colorado River Basin today is no longer how to develop additional water. It's how to reduce our existing development to sustainable levels. Uh, that's harder, isn't it? It's oh, that's much harder. easier to find more water, harder to... I don't know how you do that. What, well, what are some it, was, ideas? it was Congress said it was very easy to make promises about future water when these projects weren't built. Um, it's very hard now that every drop of water in the Colorado River for the last 20 years is used somewhere in Mexico or in the United States, about 10 percent in Mexico, about 90 percent in the United States. Every drop is used. And guess what? The reservoirs we've built are have been declining. The story, our storage in the system is our savings account, and we've been tapping that savings account. So ultimately, we can't do that forever. We're going to have to find a sustainable level of use that's far below what we're using today, and that that conflicts with long, long built-up expectations uh, in every state. Can we, I guess we'll need to conserve. Is that one of the Absolutely. And, and conservation is very, very successful in many areas, but primarily in the large cities. Um, if you look at uh, the cities of Denver, Las Vegas, Phoenix, even Salt Lake, they've made substantial progress in reducing their consumptive use per capita. And it's largely limiting lawn size. Mm-hmm. And it's happening in some ways because of the economics of the housing industry. Uh, we no longer you know, can afford to have uh, homes with three-quarters of an acre lot of grass. Uh, now that three-quarters of an acre has three or four homes or it has multiple uh, housing units on it. Uh, so we are actually making huge progress on the municipal side uh, in reducing in conservation by restricting uh, lawn sizes primarily. Uh, will we need to, uh, you know— 
restrict zoning, restrict, well, where I'm going is restrict the size of Restricting growth? No, I I don't think we'll ever get there. And that's Mm -hmm. because ultimately human uses in-house are non-consumptive. The water we use in our showers, the water we use in our washing machines, that goes back into the system. So as long as we're we're not using a lot of outdoor water, which goes into the atmosphere through uh, transpiration, we can reuse water supplies. That's what they're doing in, in, in places like Southern California. That's what they're doing in Israel. That's where they're doing elsewhere. We actually have an abundance of water for people. Uh, the problem is we use too much of it for transpiration, for lawns and parks and irrigated agriculture and, and fields. Will we need to restrict uh, or slow the growth of agriculture? I, well, I think that we've already slowed the growth of agriculture. Mm-hmm. I, I actually believe that at least in western Colorado, our agricultural use peaked 30 years ago and has been declining since. Mm-hmm. So in the end, are you hopeful? I'm very hopeful. I, I'm I'm hopeful because I I'm a pract you know I'm a, a, a practical person. We uh, we operated a or we operated a water district for I was participated in that for many years, and I've seen. There's a fundamental law that my co-author John Fleck says is that institutions learn how to use the water that nature gives them. Hmm. Uh, th- that is an optimistic view, right? It is an optimistic yeah, view. Yeah. Now, uh, lest we get too rosy here, um, let us not forget the Colorado River does not flow into the into the ocean, right? It's, well, it was supposed to, and it, and it has historically for the millions of, you know, all but for the last 20 or 30 years of its uh, millions of year history, it has flowed into the Gulf of Baja, California. Uh, it no longer does so. Uh, now, in the wet period, the wet cycle in the 1980s, and again, there was a wet cycle in the mid-1990s, and demands were less because the Central Arizona Project, which we talked about previously, wasn't taking much water. Water was still, a little water was still making it um, to the ocean. Uh, But since that time, the only time water has gone to the ocean is what we call the pulse flow back in 2014 when we, when I say we, Mexico and the United States decided to take water that it had saved and stored in uh, Lake Mead and deliver that to the ocean for environmental benefits. Mm -hmm. So as a practical uh, matter, uh, it's a a river that that, uh, makes it to the ocean no more. Yeah. Uh, Well, we're talking with Eric Kuhn. He is retired general manager of the Colorado Water Conservancy District. And uh, he is in town uh, for some meetings and to talk about his new book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. That talk is in Engineering 201 on the USU campus at 3.30 p.m., 3.30 this afternoon, Engineering 201. That's free and open to the public. And uh, we'll have more following this. This is John Meyer with the Utah Climate Center. Utah Public Radio and the Associated Press Health and Science Desk are partnering to bring you online-only stories of efforts to save and revive ecosystems around the world. The series, What Can Be Saved, includes weekly stories about reversing some of humankind's most destructive past actions and preserving Earth's vital natural habitats. What Can Be Saved, from UPR and AP, now through December 3rd at upr.org.
Hey, Jen, did you know that on the American frontier, when fruit and berries were in short supply, they'd make vinegar pie? Vinegar? That's not something I usually eat for dessert. It was something like lemon meringue, but with cider vinegar instead of lemon. That sounds interesting. Interesting, inventive, resourceful, just like our segment, Bread and Butter. We discuss all sorts of food topics from culinary research to our favorite local food finds, Sundays at 11, just before the splendid table. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Eric Kuhn. He is retired general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservancy District. He's out with a new book he's co-authored. It's called Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. He's giving a talk. Uh, it's uh, this afternoon at 3.30. It's in uh, the Engineering Building, room 201, on the Utah State University campus. Engineering 201, 3.30 p.m., uh, free and open to the public this afternoon. Um, his book, uh, co-written with John Fleck, examines, at least in part, one of the long-held myths of the Colorado River. The myth is that the unusually wet runoff conditions of the early 20th century were not well understood by those who negotiated the Colorado River Compact. And thus, the compact negotiators assumed there was more water to divide than there actually was. So that's what I want to get into uh, now. I've always had that as because that's what I've always been told, right? Unusually wet uh, series of years, so the... The, the founders of the compact uh, had that basis on which to, to found the compact. Yeah, that, that's the story. Uh, it's a convenient story. I think it's a convenient story because it, uh, it uh, uh, makes us all feel a little better that it was a mistake. Um, and uh, what I determined or what I found uh, during while I was working was that there were some really good engineering work that was done in the early 1900s. Uh, that if you look at the uh, conclusions, you would say, no, uh, they knew that the period from about 19, early 1900s, 1905 to 1906 to 1920, when they, 22, when they negotiated the compact and on to 1930 was unusually wet. And one of the first um, scientists that did this was uh, an employee of the USGS named Eugene Clyde LaRue. Uh, LaRue uh, was born in Southern California, trained uh, at the University Engineering School at uh, what is now University of California at Berkeley. Um, he went on and he spent some time here in the Utah. Uh, he was uh, assigned to uh, look at, uh, in his early career, in the early 1900s, uh, issues related to water use uh, in, on, the, on the Wasatch Front and the Great Salt Lake. Uh, he then went on uh, to uh, Pasadena, where um, he studied the Colorado River uh, in detail. Um, and he issued a report under the umbrella, of course, of the USGS. He was the primary author. The, the, the publisher was the USGS in 1916. That was the first sort of comprehensive look at the Colorado River Basin. And by 1916, we'd already had substantial development on the Colorado River for irrigation purposes. Um, much of what we see in western Colorado and in the, in the uh, Salt River Valley of, uh, of Arizona and the Palo Verde and the Imperial Valley, all, all of that was under irrigation by then. And uh, LaRue looked at the flows, um, and uh, what he did was he came to a fundamental policy conclusion that the river had insufficient water 
to meet the dreams, if you want to call it, the dreams and expectations of the, the river that by 1916 were already out there and already being discussed. Mm. You said a scene in the book, 1925, December 1925, uh, plans are underway, and so LaRue is uh, sitting before a panel of uh, senators. That's correct. Um, and the, the boosters are saying, if we'll build this uh, the series of dams and canals, the Colorado River Basin would turn 4 million acres of desert into pleasant countryside. That's a powerful dream, right? That's a powerful dream, and that's taken directly from <clears throat> statements of the, of the, you know, the, the senators, who were a subcommittee, of course, of a committee of, of the Senate, which approved uh, irrigation projects yeah. and, and approved the construction projects. And they were debating what's called the Boulder Canyon Project Act, which authorized what is now Hoover Dam and Lake Mead, uh, and the All-American Canal, which takes water from the Yuma area into the Imperial Valley. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, on the, the one side, there is this powerful dream. A lot of people want this to happen. Um, people want to live in these places, and they, they, they want this pleasant countryside, right? Um, LaRue tells this panel, the science, essentially, science isn't, you know, isn't there. There isn't enough water. That's right. Yeah, and what LaRue did was he wasn't he, he was the first but he wasn't the only one is that he looked farther back uh, the, in the you know yes we we started putting gauges in the Colorado River basin i think the first gauge uh, in uh, utah in the colorado river system was down down near where what is green river um, utah in about 1895 and we had gauges in early 1890s in in the arizona area but they were very scattered, you know, scattered and and not read daily. So the the information wasn't real complete, and that really ha- that continued really on to about 1920. Mm. So we had really scarce information. Um, and what Larue realized was that from about 1905 to 1920 to 1925 was wet because he looked at what was happening here in Utah with the the uh, Great Salt Lake, you know, a, a modern gauge or a modern elevation of the of the of the Salt Lake. They started measuring that in 1875, and he calculated using that and estimated uses upstream um, along the shores of the of the lake. He estimated the inflow into Lake uh, into the Great Salt Lake, and then he correlated that an engineering method, a statistical method, with flows. Uh, there at uh, at Leaf by now we had a gauge at Leaf Ferry, in the upper basin, and of course most of the storms that hit the uh, you know Salt Lake City area you know, also go on and hit the Green River Basin and, and many of them in western Colorado, so there's a good correlation between what's happening the inflow to the Great Salt Lake and the flow of the river at Leaf Ferry, which is in very northern Arizona. And he noticed that from about 1870, 1875 to about 1905 was a period that was very similar to the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was a dry period. So when you started to take the average of what we knew about the flow beginning in 1875 or so up to 1920, guess what? We came up with about 15 million acre feet, which is the long-term average, which we've seen a reduction in and just in the recent 20 years, which is a different issue because that's climate change. But he, he, he came to the conclusion that the river was about 15 million acre feet at Lee Ferry, maybe 16 or 17 million acre feet at um, um, Yuma, 
and realized that everyone's expectations, their plans by that time, were would develop a lot more water than what the river would provide. Yeah. I want to read this, uh, this paragraph uh, from the book. Uh, Seen with the modern eye, schooled with a narrative uh, of scarcity in the Colorado River Basin, the senator's reaction, this is 1925, uh, to LaRue, is a puzzle. In the 21st century, we now know the river's waters are overallocated. Its reservoir is declining. Farms and cities that depend on it left vulnerable to the reality of the water they'd come to expect and depend on it simply not there. It's a system on the brink of unsustainability. Yet that day in 1925, when one of the river's most important experts tried to warn the senators that they were heading down a path toward what we would now call unsustainability, the senators did not disagree. They did not argue, didn't even question LaRue about the reasoning behind his bold claim. His assertion that there was not enough water for them to carry out the grand ambition was largely ignored. Now, if you know human nature, you're, you you could predict this, right? That's correct. Yes, <laughs> but but it's uh, it's still uh, it's it's still pretty shocking, right? And and I I've my speculate that uh, even if they kind of viewed that even if Luru was right, um, you know, most of the water in 1925 of the river was still flowing into you know into the ocean. Uh, the river compared to today was still undeveloped. And it was just human nature to say, well, if, if LaRue is right, you know, we have time to fix the problem. The next generation or the next generation after that, can, 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 they can fix it. Uh, and politically, it's going to be much more um, beneficial to us you know, if we approve this project and give people what they expect and what they want. Um, and that attitude stayed in the Colorado River literally, literally for the next hundred, close to a hundred years. Today, no. I think today, with declining reservoir levels and and no water making it to the Gulf, the, the attitude has changed by necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in those days, it was easier to promise uh, people something that we potentially knew wasn't there, but we had time to fix it. Yeah. We had time to. To correct it in the future. So you think that's that's what it was? It's uh, you know the, the the of course you have political forces. That's the, the political force. The yeah. political force is uh, well. Let's get this done. It was popular. Let's get it done now. Right. Will essentially kick the problem down the road. Kick so, the problem down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I I say another analogy is how how you do budgeting in in most you know in the in the federal legislature in the, in Congress is is if it's rather easier to. Uh, to run a deficit uh, and worry about it in future years uh, than to make hard choices to cut back on programs. Yeah. And, and it was easier to assume the water would be there and we could fix it in the future than to pick someone, pick one of the, one of the project sponsors and say, you can't have your project. Or you know, Utah, you can't have the central Utah project. Or Arizona, you can't have the central Arizona project. Or Colorado, you can't, you can't build these diversions to the front range. Uh, that was a very difficult political decision. So it was easier to say, you can do that, and hopefully we'll figure out how to how to fix it in the future. Yeah. If you just joined us, we're talking with Eric Kuhn. He is retired general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservancy District. He's out with a new book that he's co-authored. It's called Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. And he's giving a talk uh, this afternoon at 3.30, it's an Engineering 201 on the USU campus. 3.30 this afternoon, Engineering 201. Uh, so I wanted to talk, telescope this out to uh, more general, if that's the right uh, phrase. Um, so a persistent tension 
uh, in applying science to public policy. And this, we're illustrating this with water policy. Uh, so you said uh, you anticipated a question. Uh, you, you feel like uh, science is being applied more accurately to public policy now, of necessity? Yes. Um, and the, the way science is being applied today is because of the necessity of dealing with a river that is over-allocated and overused. Not only it was over-allocated on paper 100 years ago, uh, 20 years ago we could see that it was actually overused in terms of there were demands exceeded uh, the available supply, but we had a cushion. We had 50 million acre-feet of water, four times the annual flow of the river at Lee Ferry in storage in these big reservoirs we built. But now we're drawing those down. Uh, so we're, we're tapping that, that bank account. And that has led to the development of what's called uh, drought contingency plans. Uh, it's the, the development of uh, major conservation efforts. Uh, and we can't ignore the science uh, because the water's just not there. And the day of reckoning has is, is hit us based on that over-allocation. Uh, but what happens in the future? Uh, in the future is the real question mark. And it's the reason John and I put out the book. Um, the Colorado River, now that it's fully used, what are, how are we gonna manage this resource in the next 100 years? And we have substantial uncertainty caused by climate change. Uh, there is pretty clear evidence that temperatures in the Colorado River Basin are going up. I mean, we, we recorded that. Precipitation is another matter. We're not exactly sure what climate change is going to do to precipitation. It looks like the southern parts of the basin, the San Juan, um, the uh, tributaries in the lower basin, maybe even the main stem are, are likely to get drier. Maybe those in the north part of the system might get wetter, but we really don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty on precipitation. But from the last 20 years, it looks like there's a clear signal between higher temperatures mean lower flows. And there's good reason for that. If you have higher temperatures, you know, you're going to have more evaporation. You're going to have more evapotranspiration by native plants and irrigated plants. And the atmosphere just is going to take more water out of the system because it's drier. So we're seeing less water in the river for a given precipitation. Uh, there are a number of, of, of studies have come out, including those um, done here at Utah State, or Utah State was a cooperator on. And that trend means that today we might have 13 million acre-feet, 12, 13 million acre-feet. Well, in 20 years, we might have 10%, 20% less than that. So we have a river already over-allocated. We already have these tensions. How are we going to put in place flexibility in the system to manage a declining resource now, we do have some options like conservation. We, have, we talked about desalinization. You know, those will work around the margins, but it, it's likely going to take some very difficult choices um, to decide how to move water from uses in agriculture that have the senior rights because they were for, there first to the urban centers including the Salt Lake, Provo area, including Denver, all of those areas where you really need certainty of supply. You can't afford, if you're, if you're, if you're providing water to the city of Logan, you're providing water to the city of Provo or city of Colorado Springs, you can't afford to say, well, you can't have water today. People don't allow that. You know, so we have to figure out how to provide the certainty necessary for people 
while at the same time recognizing that agriculture and, and the environment need water as well and that agriculture has senior rights. And, and water rights are a property right in all seven states. It's just not something you can decide, well, your use is no longer any good because you have a vested property right in, in your ability to use that water. Hmm. Uh, do you think there are changes needed in, in the law itself? Uh, and is that, I mean, that's very hard to change, right? It, it's all extremely, extremely hard to change. I, I think there's, um, we have sufficient flexibility in the law. We've made major changes uh, and said they're within the framework of the law of the river already. Uh, best example, of course, is after the compact was negotiated, we all assumed that all seven states would ratify the compact. And as we talk about in the book, Arizona refused to ratify the compact there in the 1920s. They ultimately did during World War II. So what did, what did we do? We said, well, the compact says it'll be ratified by all seven states, but Arizona won't do it. But six states want the compact, so we will figure out how to do a six-state ratification. And we went to Congress, and the Boulder Canyon Project Act, passed in 1928, said the compact can take effect if six states approve it. So we've always figured out how to you you know use the flexibility in the law to accomplish what we want. Hmm. Um, so I I don't you know compacts are really difficult to negotiate and they're really difficult to get approved because they must be first negotiated by the compact negotiators appointed by each state. Then they have to be ratified by the legislature. That ratification is a law that has to be signed by the governor, and then ultimately Congress and the president have to approve. Mm-hmm. So, you you know, someone once said you have twenty plus, you know, opportunities for somebody to say no, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yes. Before we go to break, I want to uh, t- talk. Uh, even more broadly about this tension between applying science to to public policy, uh, and and talk about climate change itself. I, yeah. I've I've uh, I've had scientists sitting where you are expressing frustration uh, that you know the, the <laughs> to the scientists is so clear, <laughs> so clear. Human caused climate change, right? Uh, and and then looking at the polls and looking at uh, how that reflects into public policy. And uh, noticing that a large segment of the population is expressing disbelief in the science which the scientist is so secure about. And I wonder if, what your thoughts are uh, about that, because that is, that is a current, very real tension um, applying science to public policy. And one that has a clear implication for the future of the Colorado River Basin. Yeah. Um, how do scientists bridge that gap? Is it scientists' job to bridge that gap? Or? Well, I, I think it's the scientist's job to to provide the best science um, without interference from the political process. And the way I view the, the river today is the problem with the science is that it interferes with people's long – term expectations, wishes, aspirations of what they want to do with their water or want to do with their communities. So when those long, um, you know, ingrained expectations conflict with reality, then the first, the first input, you know, impulse is to ignore the science or attack the science. This is something I really want, I really treasure, this is really important to my community, and now you're telling me that there's not enough water. 
to do what I've wanted to do for many generations. And, and human reaction is to, is to fight. You know, and that's the problem that the scientists have. They're really, at, the message is becoming difficult to accept about climate change because it means we're going to have to make decisions about remo- you know, changing how we use water or not building projects that we've long wanted as communities. We uh, had a caller, uh, Chris in St. George. Uh, he wants to hear about the feasibility and science of the Lake Powell uh, pipeline project. Well, the Lake, the Lake Powell pipeline uh, is, uh, is, uh, takes water out of the Lake Powell, of course, and, and uh, transfers it, uh, you know, it pumps it uphill, and then it, by gravity, goes downhill into the uh, Virgin River drainage. Now, one of the nuances is uh, Utah has both lower basin and upper basin interests. The dividing line of the compact is a place called Lee Ferry in northern Arizona, but the Virgin River drains into the basin below that. Now, of course, uh, we all know St. George uh, is uh, a booming uh, area in terms of recreation and second homes and retirement communities. It's just a nice place to live. Um, so we have that tension that I've talked about in that it is going to outstrip, or at least the planners say it's going to outstrip its native water supply that's there in the Virgin River, which is a small tributary to uh, to the Colorado River. So what are we going to do? We're going to do what Denver did in the 1920s and what Los Angeles did in the 1920s. We're going to go out and take water from where it is to where it isn't. So where is it? Uh, It's in Lake Powell. Where where it's needed is in the Virgin. So this has been going on for 100 years in the Colorado River Basin, 100 plus years. You know, so I um, be careful that I want to step on toes, but it's largely a Utah under state law. It's a Utah decision as to how much water, uh, how it's going to use its Colorado River water. There's a political process to do that. The governor, the legislature, the boards, um, the, the state engineer's office. Uh, and if, if Utah decides that's a priority, that's something that, that Utah has to work out within um, its, you know, its decision-making process. But I think what is clear is that ultimately, if that project is built and we're on a system that is already overtapped, someone else in the system is going to have to use less water. So if they move 80,000 acre-feet of water from the lake to the Virgin River, Where's that water going to come from? Well, it's going to come from somewhere else in the system. Agriculture is going to come from maybe uses in the lower basin. Um, Utah and the other upper division states basically say the, over, the lower basin is overusing its water supply and we're underusing our apportioned supply. You know, so there are many answers to that. But the bottom line is in a, it's a zero-sum game right now or a negative-sum game. Uh, the... Uh, Lake Powell pipeline is, if it's built, the water it's going to be used is going to mean that someone else in the system is using less. Mm-hmm. One of the, the objections uh, to the project I've heard um, is about the reservoir itself, the reservoirs themselves. Do, do they have a finite life? Well, yeah, yeah, they do. The question, you know, Lake Powell, um, Glen Canyon, da- you know, Glen Canyon Dam was built in the '60s. There is a sediment load that comes into it, but uh, when everything I know, you know, it's been around for at least 50 years, and and maybe 
less than three to five percent of its capacity is has been taken up through sediment. So maybe in another thousand years there may be a problem, mm. but it's big mm. enough that it'll handle the sediment. Yeah, I think there's going to be other problems before sediment becomes a problem. Uh, Chris, thanks for that uh, call, and uh, hopefully we answered your uh, question. Uh, give us a call back if we if we didn't with the follow up, and you can call as well. We have about ten minutes left in the program. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five is the number. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking with Eric Kuhn. He is retired general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservancy District, and uh, we're speaking about uh, his book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. He'll be talking about the book uh, this afternoon at 3.30 on the USU campus, Engineering Building Room 201, Engineering 201, 3.30 p.m., that talk is free and open to the public. We'll have more following this break. Utah is home to breathtaking natural wonders and rigorous scientific research, and the issues affecting our natural world are important to the life of every Utah. That's why we're answering the question, so what? Science Utah is your home for all things science. Our team of science reporters, most of them graduate students from USU's Ecology Center, are updating you on the latest in science news and providing commentary on pressing issues. Because scientific topic, from air quality to our national parks and even gene editing, matters to Utah. Join us as we explore the world of Science Utah, available at upr.org, the UPR app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Francis Lamb, and it's cookbook season. We're talking about some of our new favorites this week. From a masterclass in pasta, to the old-time food of Appalachia, baking with an award-winning pastry chef, the incredibly diverse cooking of Houston, and a love letter to Mexico. It's all coming up on The Splendid Table from 8 p.m. Sunday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with Eric Kuhn. He's retired general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservancy District. And along with John Fleck, he's authored a book, Science Be Damned. Uh, that's two M's. Uh, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. And uh, counteracting a myth in the book that uh, the unusually wet runoff conditions of the early 20th century affected the understanding of uh, the science by those who negotiated the Colorado River Compact. Um, the authors of the book uh, point out with example after example that actually the science was there and uh, a very accurate science, but that science was ignored in the enthusiasm to uh, go forward with the water projects uh, throughout the century. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, we have about six minutes left, 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, uh, so let's talk about some success stories. What, what uh, the, There have been some successful. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the um, um, misunderstood or, or, or not well understood uh, stories right now is how innovative uh, we've become by necessity. I, I think that uh, when uh, in the... 1990s, when the system was full and the Central Arizona Project yet was still not taking its its, and it takes about 10 percent of the, the water supply of the river. So when it came on, things changed, uh, and rather than fight about it, rather than going to court, and we've been to court many times on this river uh, in the 30s and 50s and 60s. Uh, so going to court was a 
is a normal reaction, let's put it that way, in the water business. Instead, um, the lower division states and the upper division states kind of got together and said, what can we do different? How can we manage the supply uh, in a way uh, that improves everyone's reliability? And, and to give you an example or several examples of what's been happening uh, is the first is look at the city of Las Vegas. Uh, in 2005 or so, just 15 years ago, Nevada was using more water than it had authorized under the, under the allocation under the Boulder Canyon Project Act. And they were serving, Nevada was the, they were serving about a million and a half people in the Las Vegas area. Today, they're serving over 2 million, about 2.2 million, and they're using 30% less water. They're well under their authorized amount. Uh, they did that through conservation. Um, and they did that through really a recognition that the water and reuse as well, uh, that we have to really focus on surviving with the water supply they had. Uh, The same is true in in the Denver area. When I began my career in 1980, um, Denver was serving Denver Water, which is a big municipal that serves the city of Denver and many of its neighbors, uh, was serving about 800,000 people. Today it's serving a million and a half or more with about the same water supply. So conservation has worked, especially on uh, the municipal sector. Uh, But we've also been very innovative in how we move water from irrigation uh, to municipal uses, especially in the lower basin. In the upper basin, we haven't had to deal with that yet. But in the lower basin, for example, um, the city uh, Metropolitan Water District, which is this huge umbrella district that takes water from the Colorado River, moves it over to the Southern California coastal plain. And of course, that's 20 million people from north of Los Angeles down to San Diego. Um, they have had a number of innovative uh, cooperative uh, arrangements and projects with the Imperial Irrigation District, the largest irrigation district, and Palo Verde, one of the other big irrigation districts. And they've been successful in conserving water while maintaining uh, agriculture in those basins. Um, So these kind of cooperative projects work. They've got us here. But what they haven't done is completely arrest um, the decline in the reservoirs. So I like to say what we've our innovation and our conservation has been doing very good, but unfortunately it hasn't been happening as fast as the impact of climate change on the water supply. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to accelerate that, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's the next step. Uh, and I think if <clears throat> um, if the our track record from 2000 or so to the last, uh, you know, through 2017 or 2018 continues, we have a good chance of succeeding. Uh, but boy, it's going to take some hard decisions throughout the basin. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a minute left. What uh, um, example of example or two of hard decisions we're going to have to make? One of the hardest decisions we're going to have to make, I think, in Colorado uh, is, for example, we've been using about the same amount of water since the 19, mid-1980s. Our water, our water use has been slightly declining. Uh, and we need to recognize that we've, these expectations we had to build big new projects, uh, irrigate new lands, uh, or, or go several hundred miles away and build new tunnels into the front range, that those are a thing of the past. We're going to have to focus our investment on reusing what we've got, not going out and uh, tapping new water supplies. That means somebody's cherished project isn't going to get built, and that's the hard decision. Mm-hmm. 
And it uh, gets us back into to politics, which is, l- lest we end on a depressing note, let's not even go there. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was somewhat helpful. Uh, the, the, that's the better way to end it. Um, so the book is Science Be Damned, uh, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. Uh, the co-author of the book, Eric Kuhn, has uh, joined us, retired general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservancy District. He'll be talking about his book uh, at an event uh, this afternoon on the Utah State University campus. Uh, you're invited to that. That'll be Engineering Room 201 at 3.30 this afternoon on the USU campus. Engineering 201, 3.30. Eric Kuhn, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting engaging and impactful stories of Utah 24 hours, 7 days a week on the air. But we have a lot more to say and so much more for you to hear. The UPR social media team is bringing you Utah's most important stories right to your feed. Stay up to date and join the discussion by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Don't forget to use the hashtag IamUPR. Why wait? Pick up your mobile device now and get the most out of Utah Public Radio. And just as always, stay tuned for more on the air from UPR.